Hey, uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Uh, Luke 10 is where we're going to spend a good part of the day. It might take us a few minutes to get there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, the verses will be on the side screens, but I'd love for you to be in the Word with us. Uh, so there's a Bible that looks like this on the floor around you. It's page 724 in that Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, just a reminder that this is our gift to you. You can take this one home with you. We'd love for you to be able to have a Bible that you can read and understand at home. So uh, I know it's got a few years on it now. It's a little few years old. But how many of you have seen the movie The Bucket List? Raise your hand if you've seen that. Okay. Uh, not as many as I thought. Not as many as the first service. We've got more movie watchers in the first service. Uh, if you don't, even if you haven't seen the movie, you know the concept. Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman play two men who wind up in the same hospital room together, uh, both fighting for their lives. And they couldn't be more different. Uh, Nicholson's character, Edward Cole, uh, is a gruff, successful billionaire. He's been married several times and divorced, and he ends up finding, finds himself on his deathbed alone. But Morgan Freeman's character is a man by the name of Carter Chambers, and uh, Carter's a beloved father and grandfather, still married to the woman of his dreams. But after some time in the hospital together, Carter gets his diagnosis. Morgan Freeman's character gets his diagnosis, and he's got maybe uh, six months to live. And... Uh, there, there's nothing they can do. And so as a prelude to what's going to happen later in the movie, Chambers says this. This is a quote from the movie. I just wanted to read this to you. I thought this was really compelling. He says, A thousand people were asked, if they could know in advance the exact day and time of their death, would they want to? 96% of them said no. I've always kind of leaned towards the other 4%. This is one of those times where I wish I had a Morgan Freeman voice. You ever have those moments? <laughs> Mine is usually Sunday morning. Um, he said, I always kind of lean towards the other 4%. I thought it would be liberating knowing just how much time you had to work with. It turns out it's not. And the reason that it's not liberating for Chambers when he gets his diagnosis is that he realizes all of the things that he's left undone in his life. He realizes there's still things that he would like to accomplish, still things that he's wanted to do. So you, you, you probably know what happens next. As a result of this diagnosis, the two men make a list of all the things they've wanted to do in life, and they try to cram it in to six months. Have you ever thought about that in your life? Like, what would you do if you found out you only had six months to live? Do you have something on the top of your mind that, like, if, if I knew I was going to die, I would do this? Do you have something? Just turn to your neighbor and tell them if, you've got, if there's, like, one thing you've always wanted to do that you would do before you die. Most of us, I think, have some things that we want to accomplish before we die, before we're gone from this earth. And that's kind of where we find ourselves this morning as we continue in this series called In the Flesh. What we've been doing, we've been walking chronologically through the life of Jesus. And uh, we're 10 weeks or 11 weeks into this 14, 13-week series. So including this week, we've only got three weeks left, two weeks after this week. Um, and so in terms of Jesus's life, we're in like the last six months, last six to nine months. Uh, and he's got work to do before he goes home to be with his father. And so we can sense the urgency in some of these passages. Well, what kind of work does Jesus have to do? I thought the work that he had to do was to come to earth and die for us, right? And a lot of us probably think that way, that that's the work that Jesus has to do. But Jesus talks about a different work that he had to do. And we can clearly see that if we skip ahead of where we are in the story to John 17. So you don't have to turn there in your Bible. I'll put these verses on the side screen. But in John 17, this is a prayer. This whole chapter is a prayer of Jesus's. Uh, John 17, 1, we see this. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. 
Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then he says this, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now this is Jesus, still alive, still that side of the cross, right? Still alive, and he's saying, I have finished the work you gave me to do. So if Jesus is still alive, he's not gone to the cross yet, but he's finished the work God gave him to do. What's the work God gave him to do? I thought going to the cross was the work God gave him to do. Well, we like to view it this way. Going to the cross was God's will for Jesus, but God also gave him some work to do. And so if we want to see what that work is, we'll skip down to verse six and we'll see this. Jesus says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. So what was the work that Jesus was given to do? To reveal God to men. In other words, to make disciples, right? To, go, to make disciples who would go and tell others. And in fact, in verse 11, he prays this. He continues in his prayer. He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. I am coming to you. Jesus has this realization that he's leaving. And if this movement that he's trying to start is going to continue, there's going to have to be people to, con- to continue it on. This is the work God gave Jesus to do, to ignite a movement that would turn the world upside down, to invest in a small group of men and women who would grow from, well, about 120 people at the time of his ascension into heaven to more than 5,000 a few weeks later on the day of Pentecost, to the point that today, about 2,000 years later, there are somewhere around 2 billion people in the world that believe that Jesus has something to do with God. To go from 2 billion people in 2,000 years is the type of movement the world has never seen and will never see unless God wills, it to see, wills us to see it again. And it all started with Jesus investing in a few and inviting them into kingdom work. Now, I wanna show you something cool about this prayer that he prays in John 17, and then we'll get to our text for the day. Jesus didn't just pray for the disciples he had at the time. He prayed for those who would be future disciples as well. In John 17, 20, we see this. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. In other words, for those uh, who he has spent time with on earth. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. How cool is it to know that before you were born, before your parents were born, that Jesus was praying for you. He was praying that for you to come to know him and whether you're a Christian or not, I hope it gives you comfort that Jesus, the son of God, was praying on your behalf before you were ever born, that you praying that you would believe in him, that you would come to faith in him, that you would be in unity with other believers. Isn't that cool? When Jesus saw the kingdom of God that he was bringing to earth, he wasn't just looking at the few men and women he had around him then. He was looking off into the future, into eternity, seeing what that would look like. And in fact, what we'll see today, this is the big idea for the message today, is this. Jesus is inviting you to join him in his kingdom work. Jesus is inviting you to join him in the kingdom work. And so one of the reasons that we wanted to do this series to study the life of Jesus chronologically is so that we can see how brilliant and intentional Jesus was in the way he did this. See, what we can do sometimes, I think, is when we read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, we kind of see them as a series of disconnected events. 
It's a bunch of stories that maybe look a little haphazard. They don't really make sense in succession. And we can get the sense that Jesus was a little bit uh, flighty in the way he did ministry. Like he would go from here to here and he would do this and he would heal that person but not heal that person. He would have this person follow but not that person follow. And we can kind of get the feeling that it was a little bit haphazard. But what we see when we study his life chronologically is he was very intentional in the way he made disciples. And we like to talk about... um, four calls that Jesus made in his life. And if you've been around Genesis anytime, uh, this is review for you, but don't worry. This isn't the topic of the whole message. I just need to review this uh, so that we can understand the passage that we're going to read today. And so we use four chairs. This is from a book by a guy named Dan Spader called Four Chair Disciple Making. And we use four chairs to outline the four calls that Jesus made on his followers uh, throughout his life. Now, uh, if you've been here for all of this series, well, first of all, you're in the minority. (laughs) Uh, But second of all, uh, you've probably heard three of these calls already. We've already talked about them. And so I'm just going to go over the calls, go over the four chairs, and then we'll get on with our scripture. So the very first call that Jesus makes to anyone who would follow him is in John chapter 1, John 1, 39. There's some men hanging out down around the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. He goes into the wilderness. He comes back after 40 days of being tempted by Satan, and he sees these guys that are disciples of John the Baptist, and he says, uh, come and see, come and see. The first call that Jesus makes is come and see. In other words, hey, come and experience a little bit what I'm about. Come and, come and spend some time with me and just see what you think. And so uh, we, when we think about this call, we think about the chair one person. The chair one person is a seeker. We call them a seeker. A seeker is someone who is interested in spiritual things, but they're not following Jesus. And that's who these men were. They were interested in spiritual things. They were following John the Baptist, but they weren't yet following Jesus. And so Jesus says, come and see. We make this call on people when we invite them to church, right? Hey, do you have a church, home? Do you, you have a church that you go to? Well, come and see. Come and see what my church is about. Maybe when we invite them over to dinner, to have dinner at our house, or to, to talk with them about Jesus. Hey, just let me tell you about my story. Come and see. You know, there's a, it's a very low, low bar, right? And so this is the first call that Jesus made on his disciples. Well, what happens is he starts spending some time with them. And a few of them look like they're ready to uh, pop. We talk about this word pop. Like if you think about popcorn, when you uh, pop popcorn, if you do that in the microwave, do you wait for all the kernels to pop? No, you can't wait for all the kernels to pop because then your house smells like burnt popcorn for the rest of the day, right? So... Uh, when most of them are popped, you're ready to move. So when there are, there are certain kernels that are ready to pop and certain that are not, Jesus saw that there were some guys that were ready to pop. And so he made the second call. And the second call we see just a couple of verses later in John 1:43. he says, follow me, follow me. And we call somebody who's in chair two, who's, made that, uh, who's accepted that call to follow Jesus, we call them a follower. Very simple, they're following Jesus. You know, it's not about praying a prayer. It's about following. Jesus invites us to follow him on this journey. And this is a big deal. To make this step from chair one to chair two is a big deal because you got to go through the cross. The cross is right here, right? And so you got to go through the cross. This has eternal significance. Somebody who is sitting in chair two is eternally different from someone who's sitting in chair one because somebody who is in chair two is a follower of Jesus. They've, they've moved from darkness to light, from hopelessness to eternal life. They're in chair two. The problem is chair two is a really comfortable chair. I know it looks the same as all the other chairs. I get it. But when you sit in this chair, it's very comfortable. There's not a lot of work to do. You just got to follow Jesus. And maybe every once in a while, you have to give some money and you've got to serve in the ministry and do some things. But chair two is pretty comfortable because they've not really much asked of you. But then Jesus doesn't let his followers sit in chair two because later, maybe 18 months later, he makes a call on some some of these same men. In Matthew 4, 19, we see it when he says, follow me and I'll teach you to fish for people. 
I'll make you, maybe you grew up, I'll make you fishers of men. If you grew up in church, you may know that verse. I'll make you fishers of men. So Jesus says, I want to take a follower who's in chair two, and I want to turn them into fishers of men. In other words, I want to take them so that their primary goal in life is no longer just to grow in their own faith, but they're going to help other people grow in their faith. We call a chair three person a kingdom worker. A kingdom worker who's somebody who's done just that. They've, they've kind of change their priorities around so that my priority is no longer as much about growing in my faith. I'm solid in my faith. It's not that you, do, you ever stop growing. That's not it. But my primary responsibility now is to help other people grow in their faith. I want to help bring chair one people into chair two, and I want to help chair two people grow in their faith because I've become a kingdom worker, All right? And so that's a chair three person. And then later, at the very, near the very end of his life, where Jesus is actually on his way to the cross, he's on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, um, he uh, stops and he tells his disciples to go bear much fruit, John 15, eight. He says, this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And so a chair four person, someone who bears much fruit, if they've answered that call, they are a disciple maker. The difference between a kingdom worker and a disciple maker is a, dis- a kingdom worker is interested in helping people grow in their faith. A disciple maker wants to reproduce this entire process in people. I want to turn people into disciple makers. So I'm going to, uh, in fact, uh, Dan in his book, Four Chair Disciple Making, says you can't be a chair four disciple maker unless you've made a disciple who's made a disciple. That's the difference, right? And so I think you can see in this how brilliant and intentional in Jesus is. And what we're going to see is he's brilliant, not just in that he makes these four calls and he does them in order and he does them at a time when people are ready. And that's all great. That's brilliant too. But he's also brilliant in understanding that people don't learn stuff just by hearing it. Right? or just by seeing it. He says, um, you're going to have to experience it. You're going to have to go practice it. And so what we're gonna see in our passage today is Jesus is going to uh, not just tell them about what it means to go make disciples, but he's gonna send them out into the harvest field to go harvest. So Luke 10, chapter one is where we are. This is where Jesus is gonna have some guys put this into practice. Uh, Luke 10, one. After, the Lord, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, Kevin read this verse uh, in uh, in his video, um, but we see this several times throughout Scripture, and some of them are the same instance, but there's, this has happened before. Jesus talks about the harvest a lot, and especially in the second half of his ministry, he starts talking about the harvest. Two and a half to three years at this point, Jesus has been building this ministry, slowly, progressively investing in a few, and then calling the 12, to, 12 apostles to lead the ministry, and then sending the 12 out. You may remember that a couple weeks ago. We kind of brushed over that, but he sent the 12 out to go do ministry, and then they came back together, and then now he's sending out 72 uh, to go do ministry together. And what I want you to see is in this simple statement, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest for more workers. In this simple statement, Jesus makes an amazing promise, and he outlines a major problem, and then he gives us a simple solution. And so we'll start with the amazing promise from Jesus. The amazing promise is the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. What exactly is the harvest? Well, 
It's not the first time Jesus talks about it. Like I said, if you go back a couple weeks ago, uh, when uh, we talked about Jesus going through Samaria, do you remember that? If you were here, he was on his way back up to Galilee and he said, I have to go through Samaria. And his disciples went to go get food and Jesus runs into this woman at the well at noon. Uh, This woman is there drawing water and Jesus is having this conversation with her. And then uh, she's Samaritan and she's a woman, so he's not supposed to be talking to her. And then the disciples come back from getting food and they basically say, Jesus, what, what are you doing? What are you doing talking to this woman? You need something to eat, right? They, they're going to try to give him something to eat. They think he um, might be on a Snickers commercial because you're not you when you're hungry. And, uh, and Jesus says, this is how he responds in John 4, 32. He says, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus says, I'm here to do my father's work. Well, what is that work? Well, we talked about that already because we skipped ahead, right? We know the answer. John 17, his father's work was to make disciples who will make disciples, to, to reveal him to men, right? To reveal his father to men. It was to go to harvest others, teach others to do the same thing. The harvest is uh, the people that are ready to come to faith in Christ. According to Strong's Concordance, the harvest is the gathering of people into the kingdom of God. It's the gathering of people into the kingdom of God. So who's in the harvest? Well, the harvest in Jesus' eyes is all the people who will be saved by the good news of the gospel. The, the harvest is all those who will go from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. The harvest is all of those who by faith will believe in their hearts and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. The harvest is every prodigal son and prodigal daughter returning home uh, to their heavenly father and being welcomed back into his arms. The harvest is every person who's born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. The harvest are people from every tongue and tribe and nation who through Jesus Christ have been adopted as children of God. That's the harvest that Jesus is talking about. This is what Jesus is giving his life to. And this is why we see such urgency in his last six months of life. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, there should be the same kind of urgency with which we live our lives. Why? Because the Bible teaches there are really only two kinds of people. I mean, there are, we, we like to divide people into all kinds of different things, right? By, by skin color, by uh, country of origin, um, by belief system, by whatever. But Jesus, there's really only two kinds of people. There are those who, um, who have believed or have confessed with their tongue that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. And those people, for those people, they will be saved for eternity. Those people are in the harvest. And then there's the rest of everybody else. And the rest of everybody else is what the Bible calls the chaff. They're, They're gonna be burned up in a place called hell, a very real place called hell. Now, we sometimes take hell really lightly in our culture. We write songs about being on the highway to hell. We think hell would be more fun than heaven, right? I'd, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. We, we laugh at cartoons about hell, which I think that's funny. Um, but uh, I know the very reality of hell is very sobering. I mean, the most common phrase Jesus used to describe hell is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He used that five times in the book of Matthew alone. Five times is what he says about hell. I don't know about you, but have you ever had a situation where you've, 
been gnashing your teeth, like maybe you fall asleep and you had something wrong with your teeth or your jaw and you wake up and you realize you've been clenching your teeth all night and your jaw hurts and your head is aching and it's awful. And Jesus says in a very small way, like that's what hell is like all the time. It's the gnashing of teeth. You know, Jesus told this story in Luke 16 to illustrate the very painful realities of hell. You can read the whole thing later today if you want. I know you all want to do a lot of research on hell today. Um, If you do, just watch the Colts play. Um, That's the kind of stuff you get in second service that you don't get if you come to first service, I tell you. The reality of hell, it's a very bad place. And, and Jesus tells this story in Luke 16 of a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus. And Lazarus dies and goes to heaven and the rich man ends up at hell. And the man is being burned up and tormented with fire. And he begs Lazarus to dip his finger in water and touch his tongue just to give him some relief from this torment. It's so ironic that the, the rich man is begging the beggar when he ends up in hell. And uh, it shows that we'll experience great pain in hell. Did you know that the Bible says that there is no pain in heaven? There's no pain or sorrow. Man, and if you've had um, chronic pain in your life, do you know that you're gonna get relief in heaven? But in hell, you're tortured with pain eternally. And so then Lazarus finds out that's not, or the the rich man finds out that's not possible for Lazarus to relieve his pain. And so then he goes, well, could you at least send him to my family? At least if I've got to be here for eternity, I don't want my family here. I don't want them to experience this. You know, if you, the reality of hell is that if you were to end up there, you wouldn't want anyone you love to experience that same pain and torture. Aren't you so glad you came to church this morning to hear this uplifting message from your pastor? Hey, listen, I don't share this to be provocative or for the simple shock value. I'm not, I'm not trying to guilt you or shame you or scare the hell out of you. I'm sharing it because one, Jesus talked about it. And if Jesus talks about it, we need to. And two, because it drove his urgency to go make disciples. Jesus knew this reality. And since Jesus is our model for life, the reality of this should drive us to go do the same thing, right? To go, should drive us to the point where we desperately want to do something for our neighbors, our schoolmates, our family, our friends. Look, I know it can be a depressing thought, to think about people that we know that are sitting here in chair one that don't know the Lord and that you've been investing in and you think, you know what? They're never going to make that change. They're never gonna make that leap from chair one to chair two. But I wanna say something to those of you who've been doing that. If you're here and you've got a family member, a friend, a brother, a cousin, an uncle, a dad, a sister, a neighbor, a classmate who you've been investing in, you've been trying to share the gospel with them, you've been trying to share the good news, I have good news for you. And it's that no one wants them to be saved more than God. No one wants them to be saved more than God. Look, in 1 Timothy 2, the apostle Paul writes, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved. He wants who to be saved? He wants all people to be saved. That's what Paul writes. Uh, Jesus doesn't want anyone to perish. Look at what Peter writes, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow at keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Who's he want to come to repentance? Everyone. Look, hey, Peter and Paul didn't always agree on things, but they agree on this, that Jesus wants your, your brother, your classmate, your roommate, your friend, your mom, your sister, to come to Christ more than you do. And there's good news in this great promise from Jesus. The harvest is plentiful. There are lots of people who are ready to pop. So the harvest is plentiful, but Jesus also tells us there's a major problem. 
And the major problem is that the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Our heavenly father wants to do a great work. He wants to gather into the kingdom of God many people who are ready to receive Christ, but the problem is the workers are few. And in my opinion, this is the greatest problem in the American church today. And I think, it's, I think it's what Jesus would say. This is what Jesus says throughout the second half of his ministry. The problem is the workers are few. It's the same problem the disciples faced 2,000 years ago. While the harvest is plentiful, we have too few kingdom workers. And here's part of the problem. And man, somebody shared this with me after the first service. I want to give credit where credit is due. If you see Paul Commons, tell him, man, he, that guy's a genius. But he said, see, here's the problem. We live in the Midwest, and in the Midwest, harvesting is easy. One guy can do it with a tractor and a combine. And so we build this big church that has a 4,000-seat auditorium, and we think, that's, that's that guy's issue. That's that guy's job, is to harvest, right? And so all I got to do is sit here in the seat and be part of this and experience this and say hallelujah, and we'll be here for 65 minutes on Sunday morning, no more, no less. And um, by the time I'm done, hey, my work's done. I'm good for the week. But, but the, the problem is when Jesus talks about the harvest back in his day, this is a one-by-one one thing. There are guys gathering the wheat and taking it into the uh, to the threshing floor and threshing it. And there, there's one person doing the work for one stalk of wheat. It's a one-on-one kind of relationship. And this is what disciple-making is supposed to look like. But there are too few workers, Jesus says. Why are there so few workers? Well, I think we could spend an entire message on this, frankly, and probably we have in the past. But I think there's one key issue that's a problem with some of us in the church, and it's because we don't see non-Christians the way Jesus saw them. You know, several months before Jesus sends out the 72, we talked about he sent out the 12, two by two. And look at what his motivation was. Right before he sent out the 12 in Matthew 9, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, Jesus didn't see non-believers, chair one people, he didn't see non-believers as pagans or idiots or enemies of the state. He saw them as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he was moved to compassion for them. And I think some of us, we need to open our eyes and ask God to show us, to allow us to see lost people in the way he saw them. And so that, that neighbor or that coworker, that person who has their locker next to yours at school, uh, they're not annoying. They're harassed and helpless. That, that uncle that you always have to sit by, that, those in-laws that you struggle with that you're gonna see at Thanksgiving this week, they're not frustrating. Well, they might be frustrating, but they're also harassed and helpless. And we need to see them that way. For Jesus, people were never problems to be solved. They were souls to be saved. Listen to how Jesus describes the loss to the apostle Paul. He says this in Acts 26. Jesus says, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them. Now remember the Gentiles weren't included in the kingdom of God at this time. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So non-believers aren't just sheep without a shepherd. They're living in darkness. You know, what, what do you do when somebody's sitting in the dark? Well, I hope you don't just make fun of them. I hope you turn on the light so they can see. Anyway, there's one more, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus sees the lost as blinded by culture. They're blind by culture um, so they can't see who God truly is. I wanna tell you why this is so important. Um, and this is gonna be maybe a little bit controversial. Um, and so hear me out. 
the church, uh, we often blame a lot of our problems on chair one people. We blame a lot of our problems on people who don't know uh, Christ, who are lost. Let me tell you what I mean. Well, the problem is they don't allow God in schools. If they would just allow God in the schools, then our kids would grow up knowing Christ and everything would be better. Well, the problem is all those people who are in favor of gay marriage. The problem is all those people who are in favor of abortion. The problem is all those people who want to take the Ten Commandments off the courtyard steps. Uh, or we sent in holidays instead of Merry Christmas. That's the problem. See, we, as, as the church, we sent, and I'm guilty about this too, we like to point at non-believers and say, that's the problem. But Jesus says, the problem is the workers are few. The problem's not there. The problem's here. Well, in fact, Jesus says, the problem is that there's not enough people here. The problem's here. And you know what? What we found out a couple years ago, we did a survey, and 80% of our church is sitting in chair two. We're believers. And Jesus says, the problem is there aren't enough followers who are becoming kingdom workers. The problem is the workers are few. You see, what we've done in the American church is we have separated the Siamese twins of evangelism and discipleship. And we've said, I'm all about evangelism. I want to help people go from here to here because I want to see somebody saved for all of eternity. And that's good and that's important. But then there are other people that say, well, I'm all about discipleship. I want to see believers grow in their faith. And what we've done is we've kind of drawn a line here and said, I'm either going to be about discipleship or I'm going to be about evangelism. But Jesus says, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. We're going to take people from here to here to here to here. And sometimes we get to here and it's like so comfortable to just sit here and experience our service, and to sing some songs, and to give a little bit of money, and maybe serve in gen kids once a month, and this is really good, and when we're done, we can go watch football, and then we feel good about ourselves, and Jesus says, here's the problem, here's the problem, there's not enough people coming over to here. The workers are too few. We need more workers. We need more people like Rick Freed. Rick is a guy that uh, was our neighbor, when Benita and I first got married 25 years ago, we moved into this house and neither one of us were following the Lord at the time. And I remember uh, Rick came into our yard one day. We'd probably lived there about a year or two. Um, so we were young and we, like I said, neither one of us were Christians. And Rick comes to our house and he saw my wife working in the yard and there was something about her that he could just tell she was ready to pop. I don't know what it was. I don't know if he prayed about it. I don't know if he saw something in her. But Rick came into our yard and he came up to my wife and he said, hey, my wife and I are gonna start a Bible study. We're gonna study the book of John. Would you like to join? And uh, Benita said, sure, who's gonna be there? And he said, well, right now it's just you. (laughs) God bless somebody who would do a Bible study for one person, right? And you know what happened is she started reading through the book of John with Rick and Diane and uh, she discovered who Jesus really was and she decided to come under his lordship for her life. And then you know what my wife did? She started praying for me. That my wife as soon as barely crossed from darkness to light, from hopelessness to eternal life, which I can barely say that without uh, taking on Pastor Pierre's accent from Haiti. Um, as soon as she crossed over to here, she started to become a kingdom worker. She started praying for her husband. And I have to tell you, I'm here 23 years later and I am almost ready to accept Christ as my Lord and Savior. I am like that close. (laughs) Now you guys know how this story ends, but it wouldn't end that way 
if it weren't for kingdom workers like Rick Freed and like my wife, Benita. But Jesus says the problem is there are too few workers. That's a major problem. The good news is that Jesus offers a solution. In fact, he gives us a twofold solution. It's simple, but there's two parts to it. Uh, Luke 10, 2, again, he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers out into his harvest field. He gives us an amazing promise, right? He gives us a major problem, then he gives a twofold solution. He says to pray and engage. Pray and engage. The first thing Jesus says we've got to do to solve this problem is to pray. It always starts with prayer. He essentially says, pray and ask the Lord of the harvest for more kingdom workers. Ask is a, a kind of a really weak translation here. A better translation would be to pray earnestly, or the Greek word can also mean to beg, to beseech, beg the Lord for more workers. I spent a lot of time uh, talking about hell this morning because I think if we could just understand the weight and the gravity of this problem of having too few workers, if we could grasp from eternity's perspective you know, from God's perspective, what it would mean to have more kingdom workers uh, raised up and sent into the harvest fields, I'm guessing that we would beg him to send more workers. We would beseech him. We would pray earnestly and fervently for more workers because really, isn't it the best thing that we can do, the most loving thing we can do, the most compassionate thing we can do? Isn't it to rob people from hell and bring them into heaven? Here's what's fascinating to me. This is one of the few times that Jesus ever tells us what to pray in the gospels. I don't know if you've done this research. There's a lot of times where he tells us how to pray, but this is one of only a couple times I can see where he tells us exactly what to pray and why to pray it. Now, why would he do that? Could it be that this is actually the solution to the problem? This is truly the solution to too few kingdom workers. Could it be that Jesus wants us to ask for more workers because that's exactly what his father wants, what God wants. And Jesus says, I only do what my father wants me to do. When's the last time you prayed this prayer? When's the last time you prayed for more workers? I have to tell you, I was really convicted this week even reading this and preparing this message that, that I've got a, a friend and I've got a neighbor, two people that I'm investing in and I've shared my story with them and with one of them, I've shared the gospel. With the other one, I haven't shared the gospel yet, but I've shared my story with them and I've been investing and I pray for them too. And I pray that the Lord would give me opportunities to share. I do that a lot, but what I don't do is pray for him to send more workers into the field. Like all of these guys work around, live around other Christians. And why aren't I praying for more workers to come in and help me out with the work? I don't know, but I was convicted this week. I'm not praying this prayer nearly enough. But Jesus says prayer is part of the solution. But in his actions, he tells us that prayer is just part of the solution. The other part is to engage. He wants to engage in the harvest because right when Jesus tells them this, pray for more workers. Now get out, go do it, right? He's kicking them out. He's sending them out, the 72 out. He's telling them, in effect, look at this, this is brilliant. See, Jesus is brilliant. I'm telling you, if for no other reason than to see the brilliance of a great leader, you should read the New Testament. Because Jesus goes, he says, uh, he says uh, you're gonna pray for more workers and then you're gonna be the answer to your own prayer. <laughs> you're gonna go send out into the field. Now, uh, my guess is that most of us who are followers of Jesus anyway, uh, most of us want to engage in the harvest, right? I mean, how many of you have ever been in a spiritual conversation with somebody who wasn't a follower of Jesus? Raise your hand. And like you wanted to share the gospel, maybe you want to know how to do that. Or I want to know how to share my story. And, and that's why we're doing the Multiply Workshop on Sunday, December 2nd, it's to get, or Saturday, December 2nd, to give you some basic tools to help you engage in the harvest. You know, for the last two years here at Genesis, we have 
um, been trying to grow as kingdom workers. And last fall, we started this monthly gathering called Multiply. We were doing it on Tuesday nights. And it was designed to be a gathering for kingdom workers. And many of you attended one or more of those uh, gatherings. Uh, but now we're ready to take another step. And so on this Saturday, December 2nd, uh, we're going to put all the pieces together. We realized that one of the things that we didn't do so well last year is we gave you a bunch of tools a bunch of equipment to go use, but we didn't really give you the, the order or the meaning behind all of it. And so what we're gonna do this year is paint the picture of the whole, uh, the whole picture. I don't know how to say that. <laughs> give you the whole uh, outline of what it means to be a disciple maker and to, to invest in people. And so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna put the whole puzzle together. So whether you attended last year or not, I hope this will be a great opportunity for you uh, to do. Now, I wanna show you what happens when we start to engage in kingdom work. And so we're going to skip down to the end of this story uh, in verse 17, Luke 10, 17. It says this, the 72 return with joy. So Jesus sends them out to go do ministry. They go do ministry. They come back. They return with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit in your name. When, when you invest in others, it brings joy. Hey, how many of you could use a little more joy in your life? Jesus says, hey, go do kingdom work because when you get to be a part of somebody's life-changing decision to follow Jesus, when you get to see, I'm telling you guys, when you get to see somebody go from hopelessness to eternal life or to go from sitting on the sidelines to getting in the game and you're a part of that, it brings great joy. But look what else happens. Let's get down to verse 21. It says, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. So kingdom work doesn't just bring us joy. It brings Jesus joy. You know, there are only a few times in the New Testament where Jesus is described as being full of joy. And this is one of them. When the kingdom workers come back from doing their work and they're full of joy, it brings Jesus great joy. But look at this also in Luke 15. He says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Kingdom work doesn't just bring us joy and bring Jesus joy. It brings joy to all of heaven. Hey friends, let's be a church that is resolved to bring as much joy as possible to Jesus. <laughs> you know, let's, let's, let's bring as much joy as we can to heaven. And in the process, let's experience much joy for ourselves. Because here's the thing, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, you probably won't understand that. You may think this is weird. You may think this is a little crazy. And this is why you don't like Christians anyway, but I don't know why you're here if you're here. But if you're a Christian, you know this, that Jesus alone is the bringer of light. Jesus is the only one who can bring light into the darkness. He is the only one that can bring hope into hopelessness. He is the restorer of all things. But we get this glorious invitation to join him in the work he has prepared for us to do. And he tells us the harvest is plentiful the workers are few. Pray, beg, ask the Lord of the harvest to send more workers. So let's pray that right now. Let's pray that together. God, we are, um, we are so thankful for this amazing promise. And for those of us in the room who are followers of yours, who are Christians, um, and we know the, the life that you bring into death, the, the hope that you bring into hopelessness. Um, Lord, we sense the urgency 
uh, of the harvest. Uh, We see that there are people who desperately need you in their lives. And Lord, we desperately need you in our lives. We need people investing in us, but Lord, I pray right now that you would send workers into the field. And Lord, um, I'm raising my hand and saying, start with me. God, I'm convicted again this morning that um, even though I do invest in people, even though I try to share my story, God, that you have more for me. You want me to be a worker, a kingdom worker. You want me to dedicate my life to this. And so, Lord, I just raise my hand and say, here I am, God, send me. And I know there are people in this room that probably feel the same way. And Lord, I just pray that you would encourage them this week as they think about what it means to share their story, what it means to share your story, what it means to invest in someone who doesn't know you or who knows you and is ready to make that next step uh, into a, to become a kingdom worker or a disciple maker. Lord, I just pray uh, in the name of Jesus that you would help us to know to see who's ready, who's ready to be harvested, to to know uh, exactly what to say and how to say it, to to pray for them. And Lord, we pray that you would send workers. You've asked us to pray that. So we pray that you would send workers into the lives of those that we're trying to invest in. And God, start with me. I pray this in the name of Jesus.